Well, last week we talked about Jesus' triumphal entry in Jerusalem, actually about two weeks ago. Now we come to a passage that's more, more than one commentator has said is the most, one of the most difficult stories in the Gospels. One quote in one commentator says, many modern commentators would just assume that it were not here at all. It's almost a parenthetical event. Now that's a $10 word, parenthetical. That just means it's sandwiched between one story. It's a little story by itself, but it, it combines the two, but it, it could be anywhere in the situation. It just happens to be right in the middle of one continuous story. So it's sandwiched between the triumphal entry and the cleansing of the temple. And, and Mark just interrupted one account to throw this in. And as we see, it's not actually out of place. It's exactly where God wanted it to be because it ties the two together. So what's the account? It's the cursing of the fig tree. Mark 11, verse 12 says, The next day as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went out to find it if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves because it was not seasoned for figs. Then he said to the tree, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. Father, thank you for this word. I pray you give us wisdom and direction as we rightly divide your word of truth this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, Jesus had his evening arrest, like we mentioned two weeks ago, and he was making his way to the temple. But it was the evening time, everyone had gone home, he looked at the temple, no one was there, and so he was waiting until the next day for everyone to come back out. And so we come to the cleansing of the temple. But on his way to do that, he comes across this fig tree, this random fig tree. And both the fig tree and the cleansing of the temple were both symbolic. They were both symbolic acts that illustrated the spiritual condition of the nation of Israel. Now, as they're getting ready to leave, Jesus, like everybody else, he got hungry. Verse 12 says, the next day as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Now, if you've been fasting, you know what that's like. Get up in the morning and you normally have breakfast, but you're, not, you're fasting breakfast and lunch. And come dinner time, you're starving. So I get where Jesus was hungry. And the Bible says that in every aspect, Jesus was human, which means Jesus got tired and Jesus got hungry. Hebrews 12 or 2.17 says this, Therefore, it was necessary for Jesus to be in every respect like us his brothers and sisters, so that he could be merciful and he can be our merciful and faithful high priest before God. He could then offer a sacrifice that would take away the sins of the people. In other words, if... I, I went to the hospital once to pray for someone who, I forget, I think they had cancer. They were really sick. And I went in and I said, I know how you feel. And they rightly said, no, you don't. Because you've never been where I am. And they were right. And it, would, it was dumb of me to say that. And I really can't empathize with them because I've not ever been there. Jesus made it a point to be where we are so he could understand how we feel. He could understand hurt. He can understand hunger. He can understand pain. He can understand every experience that a human being can under, undergo. And so when the Bible says that he... It was necessary for him to be like us. That's why. 
So we can't say, well, Jesus has no idea how I feel. Yeah, he does because he was exactly where you are. No matter what you're going through, Jesus has been there. So going back to Mark, in verse 13, it says, Seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went out to find it if it had any fruit. Now, they, history and, and science tells us that fig trees start to produce leaves in March or April, but the actual figs don't come until June. So now it's Passover time, which is March or April, which is about right. Now, the presence of leaves could mean the presence of fruit that was actually left over from last season because regular I haven't got the regular fruit yet. But Jesus had to go and inspect it for himself. And since it was this time of the year, March or April, there was no fruit on it because verse 13 says, when he reached it, he found nothing but leaves because it was not the season for figs. So here's the question. If it wasn't the season for figs, why was he upset? Why didn't he just make the tree have fruit? If he's hungry and he can do anything, fruit. Because he wanted to teach his disciples and us a couple of lessons. The first one was failure. Anybody ever fail at something? Nobody's ever failed at anything. Israel had, to, had failed to be fruitful for God. Now, in the Old Testament, the fig tree was associated with Israel. In Hosea 9.10 says, the Lord says, O Israel, when I first found you, it was like finding fresh grapes in the desert. When I saw your ancestors, it was like seeing the first ripe figs of the season. Israel's associated with fig tree. So he's talking to the tree as if he's talking to Israel. A leafy tree with no fruit was basically... All show and no go. Looks good from a distance. Awesome. But no fruit. Nothing to benefit anybody else. The leaves themselves, they're worthless. He came for the fruit. Israel as a nation was supposed to be witnesses to other nations. And by their lifestyle, other nations were supposed to come and worship God. They were supposed to see Israel's life, see God's blessing upon them, and want what Israel had. And instead of leading them to Jesus, or leading them to God in the Old Testament, Israel was drawn away by everybody else. They were failing at being the witnesses and bearing the fruit of other people coming to know God. Now, after they were exiled in Babylon, now if you, up to that point, Israel had worshipped every single idol that came down the pike. Baal and Astrid, everything else. They worshiped everybody but God. God says, okay, I've had enough. I'm going to send you to Babylon. You're going to be in slavery for 70 years. And then you're going to come back. And at that point on, from that point on, they did not worship idols. They were done worshiping idols. But the problem was they were now worshiping their lifestyle. They were now worshiping, they were worshiping the word more than they were worshiping God. Now, you know I'm a big guy for the Bible. You need to know your Bible. But we don't worship the Bible. How many know that? We don't worship this. This points us to Jesus who we worship. Because if you worship this, and then you'll be tied to this and not care about people. That's what happened in Israel. 
they were so worship they were so worshiping the law and putting things in place to help the law that they didn't care about the people because ultimately what they wanted to do was worship the word so that's exactly where they were coming out of exile in Babylon and that's exactly what they became the Pharisees and the leaders and a lot of the Jews in that area were looking good on the outside they had their robes they were doing the right things outwardly but they were producing absolutely no spiritual growth or fruit in Israel Israel failed to be fruitful and therefore like the tree they were going to be cursed now here's a question we have to ask ourselves our, our Sunday school lesson this morning the the Bible verse that says examine yourself to see whether you're in the faith the question is are we the leafy tree do we look good on the outside do you wear your Sunday going to meeting clothes act all great in church but when you leave you're somebody else you look good but you don't act good that's what was happening with Israel and if we're not careful it could happen to us do you look good on the outside but inwardly the fruit of the spirit wise am I showing the fruit of the spirit and what is that do I exhibit in Galatians 5 22 the fruit of the spirit is love we love other people joy do we walk around not smiling all the time but you have joy do you have peace you have patience you have kindness goodness faithfulness gentleness and self-control are these attributes getting better in your life as you get older with the Lord do you love better do you have joy more do you have peace more are you kind to people do you have goodness coming out are you faithful to the Lord and to others do you have gentleness and and do you have self-control if you're not exhibiting any of these in your life then you don't have the fruit it's easy to say something it's harder to live something and we have to be sure and obviously none of us are perfect but we should be growing in these fruits we should be better this year than we were last year we should be more faithful this year more gentle this year how many have found is if you're an older parent you learned on your first kid and you're a little easier on a second kid my dad I have another brother who's two years younger than me and one who's 14 years younger than me and that my my other brother the closest one man my dad was rough it was you know it was the it was the belt it was all that kind of stuff my younger brother comes along and my dad's calmed out he's mellowed out in these years and we're thinking man I got beat for that and he's not getting anything for that are you mellowing out are you becoming more like Jesus the order you get if you're not if you're the same that you were 10 years ago or five years ago why make sure you're exhibiting the fruit of the Spirit verse 14 says then he said to the tree may no one ever eat fruit from you again now some folks think this is a parable some thinks it's a real account it's actually a real account with a another word parabolic meaning now parabolic I'm thinking geometry but a parable with meaning okay 
One commentary refers to it as a, an acted out parable. Now, people in Jesus' day, just like our day, are, are hungry for spiritual things. And specifically hungry for God, but they don't know how to get the food. You, I would venture to say that the majority of people in the world believe in God. Whether it's the true God or not, it's not. You know, they believe in some God. Whether it's a tree, whether it's the sky or the sun or whatever, they believe in something, something higher than themselves. They're hungry for something spiritual, but they don't know about how to get it. And so they try all these other things hoping to get what they're missing. We and Israel were supposed to be the one giving them the food. Here, here it is. Here's what you're looking for. And folks are hungry, but they're not sure what they're hungry for. And so they kind of glatch onto something that may give them meaning. And we as believers know what is missing in their life. We know what they need. We know they need the Lord. Now, since this tree was fully leafed out, even though it was spring, from the outward appearance, it looked like it should have had fruit on it. But it didn't. The Jewish people, and specifically the Jewish leaders, were the fully leafed tree, looking like they should have the information to help people find God. But they didn't. People would come to them for food, help, and find nothing. Going back to Matthew 23, it says, Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees are the official interpreters of the scriptures. So practice and obey what they say to you, but don't follow their example, for they don't practice what they teach. They crush you with impossible religious demands and never lift a finger to help ease the burden. And he goes on in verse 27, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of dead man's bones and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside you would appear to be people as righteous, but on the inside you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. These guys were supposed to be the ones leading people to God in the Old Testament, to Jesus in the New Testament. They were the ones that were supposed to have the information. They had it, but they weren't giving it to anybody. They weren't helping anybody find God. They weren't doing what they were called to do. And in spite of its many blessings and opportunities, Israel was outwardly fruitless. And inwardly, they were corrupt. You're going to see a lot of that going on with churches today, too, by the way. Now, we're not going to be that church, but there are churches like that. They look good on the outside but they're not on the inside. They're not leading people to Jesus. We're, as Christians, we are called to help those that are in need. How many know that? Feed the poor, widows, you know, stuff. But that is, we're supposed to do that because we care for them and we're supposed to do it to lead them to Jesus. How many know that's a means to an end? To love them into the kingdom. If you focus only on that aspect and you don't focus on the cross, you're missing out the whole reason on what, why we're doing it. 
There's a lot of churches doing a lot of civil and social work, which is fine in itself. But unless they are leading people to Jesus, it's just a temporary fix. Because at the end of the day, they need the Lord. They need Jesus. And if they're not being directed to Jesus by the folks that are doing this, they're missing out on their main responsibility. Jesus goes on, we're going to talk about the temple cleansing in a minute, because that's part of it. Israelites and the leaders were inwardly corrupt, and that's why Jesus had to cleanse the temple lot. Now, Jesus didn't normally act in judgment on people. John 3.17 says, God did not send his son into the world to condemn it, but to save it. Jesus wants to save everyone. 2 Peter 3.9, the Lord is long-suffering, not wanting any to perish. All to come to repentance. Now we're praying for those who don't know Christ, right? The Bible says God doesn't want any to perish. And the Bible also says if you pray anything according to my will, it will be done for you. So we are praying for those we don't, that we know that don't know Christ to come to know Jesus. But there are times when Jesus used his power to destroy something in nature, there's two things. He controlled the seas, and now he cursed the fig tree. And there are times that that is the only thing left for God to do as well. Jesus was about to go through Holy Week, and the time for judgment was about to begin. What's the Bible say? Judgment begins at the house of God, right? God's going to start judging his church before he starts judging the world. How many have heard of the IHOP, International House of Prayer. I mean, been following that fiasco. God's cleansing his church. God's getting out of his church things that are sinful and stained. And we can only hope that God will continue to do that. Because if we don't do it ourselves, God's going to do it for us. So we want to be sure that we're living our lives holy and righteous. He used the fig tree as a visual example of what he was talking about. And we'll see later his, his show of physical judgment on Israel with the temple cleansing. Verse 14 says, Then he said to the tree, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. Now, Jesus could have whispered that. Jesus could have just thought it. Or in his breath, why say it verbally? Well, obviously, he wanted those around him to hear it. And we'll see later on how this event ties into the following morning. Now, the takeaway from this section is the question I've asked before. Examine yourself. Are you leafy trees? In other words, you look good on the outside. You do and say all the right things. You talk the Christian ease. But you're not really producing any spiritual fruit. Or maybe you're not allowing the Holy Spirit to produce that fruit. And the Bible says we can resist that. God wants us to be kind. Now yeah, you can resist that. God wants us to be gentle. You can resist that. Do we show and feel love and joy and peace, etc.? Or do we have contempt, a lack of joy, no peace during hard times, and a short fuse with others? I believe Jesus wanted the guys to hear this so they could check their own hearts. And if they needed to check their hearts, maybe we need to check ours too. 
So now the story continues in verse 15. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple area and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. And he would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. So he cursed a fig tree for not producing fruit. So I'm guessing he's hungry. He's mad at the tree. So he's probably not in a great mood walking into town. And we see in John's gospel that he had already cleansed the temple once. This is the second time he's doing it. In John 2, it says, when it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found men selling cattle and sheep and doves and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple area, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. How dare you turn my father's house into a market? So he cleansed it once. Maybe the last year or two years ago. He comes back into town. Is doing it again. And maybe as soon as he left the first time, the guys who were in charge, religious leaders said, okay, he's gone. Go ahead and go back and start doing it again. And the person who would have the final say on that would be the chief priest of that town. And that's important because the act of cleansing the temple was a direct challenge to the authority of the chief priest. When he came in and threw everything away, he was basically telling them that I have more authority than your chief priest does. And I'm telling you to get rid of this stuff. And not only that, not only were they selling things, they were gouging the poor people who came to make an offering. Now, if you read the Old Testament, your offering had to be without blemish, right? No, no scars, no runs, nicks, or errors on, this, on whatever animal you're bringing, right? Had to be perfect. And so what they did is they set up inspection stations where someone would inspect your animal and say, yep, you're good to go. It looks perfect. Or they would say, nah, no, you got a flaw here. you got to go back and get another one. Well, the problem with that is you travel, not everybody lived in town. You had to bring this animal with you for however many miles away you lived. And you get there, and arbitrarily they could say, no, nope, not good enough. But here you can buy one that I have here that's already ready to go. So either they have a choice of buying that one at a highly inflated price or running all the way back home, miles away, to get another sheep and possibly have it rejected as well. So they had a pretty good business going here. And more often than not, they would make them buy whatever animal they had, and they would have to give up, obviously, their animal, and they would go in. Another aspect of that is, if you remember the rules of the Passover, it wasn't just any ordinary sheep. It had to be one that you cared for and loved. You had to bring, well, when Nathan confronts David, he says this kind of thing in a parable, or in the story. When David sinned with Bathsheba and he didn't get caught, Nathan comes in and gives him this story. Because we, this, you know, this one guy had a whole herd of, or a flock of sheep, didn't care anything about him. He had this one little poor guy, he had one sheep. And that sheep ate, you know, lamb slept with him, he loved him, he ate from the table. And so the rich guy comes over and steals that guy's lamb and sacrifices him. And David flips out. Well, that's how you were supposed to use, your offering was supposed to be an animal that meant something to you. 
that you fellowship with, you had in your house, it wasn't just something out of the flock. It had something that you were, had a relationship with. It'd be like your, your dog or your cat being the sacrifice. It had to mean something to you as a pet. It couldn't just be some random sheep you grabbed out of the flock. It had to mean something to you. And so these guys were coming up, hopefully with sheep that meant something to them. They had a bond with, and now they couldn't do it. And now they're offering just a random sheep. It didn't mean anything to them. So that's another way that they were really overriding and just ruining the reason for the Passovers. Now, how many have heard the statement, the road to blank is paved with good intentions, right? Well, I'm sure that maybe when they started out, they had a good intention. You know, I wouldn't want to make these people drive or fly, go home five days away to get another land. Maybe I'll just have one for them just in case it's a bad one. But now it quickly morphed into what it is today, that they're just selling all kinds of things. I hear you, man. I, I'm almost done. <laughs> now, see, she's just saying what you're all thinking. So, Now, this market was placed in the area called the Court of the Gentiles. And this was an area that the Gentiles would be able to come into to learn about Israel's God. Now, you know, they weren't allowed to go into the, the holy area, holy of holies. They weren't allowed to go anywhere except this outer court. And right, what's supposed to happen is the leaders were supposed to be there kind of like, like a, a mission field. Leaders were supposed to be there. When Gentiles walked in, they were supposed to talk to them about the God of Israel and show them what the God of Israel was like and lead them to faith and become you know, an Israelite at that time. But what happened was instead of it being a missionary field, it became a marketplace. It was no longer a place where Gentiles could pray and seek God it was now a flea market. And if a Gentile walks into this area looking for God, because that was the general consensus, you go to this area, you'll find the Jewish God. And they walk in and they see a market. What do, they, what do you think? Man, God's not here. And, and, and if this is how God works, I don't want anything to do with that. And they're, they're gouging these people, they're stealing their sheep. I don't want any of their God, if that's how it is. And that's why Jesus says this in Mark 11. And as he taught them, he said, Is it not written that my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers? Now, the first part of that sentence was actually a, prophet, a prophecy given by Isaiah indicating that non-Jews would be allowed to worship. That was the whole message behind it. And this court was the only area that the Gentiles were allowed to come and worship. And now it smells like a barn. They're not getting close to God there. They're getting gouged and, and mistreated there. And the second part of that, the den of thieves part, is from Jeremiah. Talking again, God rebuking Israel. He says, will you steal and murder, commit adultery and perjury, burn incense to Baal and follow other gods you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house which bears my name and say, oh, we're safe safe to do these detestable things? Had this house, which bears my name, become a den of robbers to you? Now, there may not have been idols of Baal in this temple, but it was nonetheless, it became an adulterous area. And the den was actually a place where thieves could run when they wanted to hide. 
Warren Wisby says this, the chief priests and scribes were using the temple and its religious services to, quote, cover up or, quote, hide their sin and hypocrisy. It's like going to church on Sunday and living like the devil Monday through Saturday. Well, if I go to church, I'm good for the week. I don't care how I live the rest of the week, but if I go to church, man, I'm good. Doesn't work that way. But that's what these guys were doing. And a lot of folks go to church thinking that, well, I, I put my hour in on Sunday, I'm good with God. And everyone thinks I'm good with God. Everyone thinks I'm a good person because I go to church. Then they see your lifestyle and they think, well, I want nothing to do with your God if that's how you're gonna live. Jesus cleansing the temple was cleansing it to allow access for the Gentiles to come to God. And it's a precursor of what his death was going to do. Now ripping the veil in half, now Gentiles were allowed to come. He was making the God of the Jews available for everyone to worship by cleansing the temple and then finally ripping the, ripping the curtain. He was getting rid of the old method of worship that was confined to the Jews and now making it available to everyone. And as we know, those in power never want to give up the power. <laughs> Look at any politician. Mark eleven eighteen says, The chief priests and teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. Not only the chief priests and teachers, they were joined by the Pharisees and Herodians. In Mark 3, back, back in Mark 3, it says, he looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts. Said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was completely restored. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with Herodians how they might kill Jesus. So they, they want to kill Jesus for healing this guy. That's not why they wanted to kill him. They saw their power base eroding away by someone that other people were going to follow. And so he was threatening their power he was threatening the chief priests and teachers of the law of power. So the only way to get rid of that was to get rid of Jesus. And not only that, now they were losing power and losing money. Because he cleansed, he got rid of all the stuff in the, in the Gentile, court of the Gentiles. He scattered all the animals. Losing power, losing money, something's got to be done. Verse 19 says, when evening came, they went out of the city. They couldn't be overt in their desire to kill Jesus. They had to plan. So since Jesus knew their hearts and that the city wasn't probably the safest place to stay at night, he left and tells us he went out of the city. Most commentators think he went to Bethany. So, how does this apply today? Does the community think of our church as a place to pray and find God? Do people even know we're here? Do we welcome everyone? We've mentioned before, everyone is welcome to come in. We want everyone, regardless of where they are, we want everyone to come in because we want them to see Jesus. We want them to come to faith. The, the saying is, we catch them, God cleans them. Our job is to bring people to Jesus. Regardless of lifestyle, regardless of what they're doing, our job is to bring them to Jesus. It's Jesus' job to make them better, to change them from the inside out. 
And I'll close with this, this statement. One commentator asked this question. And I thought it was a pretty good question. It says, if Jesus were to show up in your church today, what changes would he make? What do you think he would do if he walked in this morning? I mean, he's here. But if he physically walked in and says, I think you should do this. What do you think he would tell us to do? And what do you think he'd tell each one of us individually to do? And we ended the 21 days of prayer and fasting as the last day, having a, a fellowship tonight. Hopefully we were praying for more of the Lord. For God, not necessarily, I mean, we were praying for specific needs, but ultimately we want to get closer to God. We want to get closer to the Lord so we can hear his voice, we know his promptings, that type of thing. We want to be sensitive to the Spirit so as we're reading God's word, we get something from God's word. And when we're praying, God will drop something in your mind that you need to hear. So apart from all of that, what has God shown you that we need to modify? Maybe we need to change a little bit here, tweak a little bit there. There's a saying in business that says, if you've done what you've always done, you'll get what you've always got. So that means you can't always do the same thing all the time. The gospel stays the same. The story stays the same. Jesus stays the same. How we get people to know Jesus might change. Things that worked 40 years ago may not work today. Things that we did 40 years ago, while not bad, are different than today. If you had someone that was around in the church in the 50s or the 40s, they may walk in here today and be freaked out by what we do. And then people 40 years from now may be freaked out what, what we do. The goal isn't to keep doing everything the same. The goal is to becoming what God wants us to be, and that always changes. Are you the same today that you were five years ago? When you got gray hair or glasses, not the same. Hopefully when you get older you get wiser, not necessarily true in every case, but hopefully that's what happens. God wants us to get better. We never arrive. We never get to the point where we say, you know what? Thanks Lord, I'm exactly where you want me to be, no further. There's always further to go. So the question stands, what changes do you think God would ask you or us as a church to make? Would you stand as we close this morning? Would you bow your heads for a moment? Father, we stand before you this morning. And the desire of our hearts is to be what you've called us and what you know we can be. And I pray that you would fill each one of us with your spirit. And as we have spent these last few weeks really seeking you, I pray that each one of us would be sensitive to the spirit, sensitive to what you're saying to us through your word, sensitive to what you want us to maybe modify in our lives. Not that what we had was bad, but maybe it's time for something new. I thank you, Lord, 
that you saved me. And I know each person here is thankful that you saved them. And we are thankful that you were long-suffering with us. You put up with a lot of grief from each one of us before we came to know you. And your word tells us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You died for us when we hated you. You told the people that crucified you or told God about the people who crucified you, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. So we thank you for having that grace and mercy upon us. And I pray that as we continue to grow in our knowledge of you, that we would be evidenced by more fruit of the Spirit in our life, that we would not be the leafy tree that looks good, but acts differently. We're not perfect, Lord. We make mistakes all the time. We sin constantly, but we're not addicted to sin. We're not habitually sinning. And when we do sin, we recognize it, and your word tells us we can come to you for forgiveness and move on from there. But Father, our life should be marked with a difference both in the world, how we deal with the world, and difference in how we were years ago. We should be coming more like you. And I pray that you would help us to discern what that means for each one of us and what that means for our church. How do you want us to adapt to reach more people? Paul says, I become all things to all people in order that I might save some. We want to be people that are attractive in the sense that they want to know about the God that we serve. So I pray that our life would be reflective of that. I pray that you would bless each person here this morning. And if any of us is going through a struggle, I pray that, God, you would help them through it, that you would either heal their bodies, touch their lives, provide for them, Lord. Allow us to receive what your word has told us that you will give us. We seek you and your righteousness. Your word says all these things will be added to us. So Father, we first want to seek you. And we trust you for what's going to happen tomorrow. Father, we really love, we really love you this morning. And we're thankful for all your blessings in our life. Help us to be that blessing to somebody else so that they're able to come to know you and have the same gratitude that we did when we got saved. So Lord, I commit each person, whether they're here or watching online, I pray that God, you would fill the room that they're in, allow them to receive from you, and allow them to walk out feeling that they've been in the presence of God. So Lord, we commit them to you to that end in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Amen, God bless you. See you fasters tonight.